show that covers horror franchises one movie and one episode at a time as always i'm your host mike snoonian and the end of the year sees us starting a new franchise and it's one i'm both kind of excited and really nervous to talk about we are kicking off our phantasm series with a look back at don coscarelli's 1979 indie horror sensation so to date we've covered like 20 franchises this is our 21st franchise it's legal it can now drink excellent um and we've done a number of like various one-off movies and bonus topics over 162 shows phantasm is probably the series i'm least familiar with especially as we get into these later movies which are going to be personal first-time watches for me so thankfully, I've got some of my fantastic regular co-hosts along to take the wheel to Barracuda while I'm sitting shotgun. Up first from Dread Central, Daily Grindhouse, Rue Morgue, and a frequent contributor to the Losers Club, really the only Stephen King podcast <laughs> you need to listen to, we have Miss Rachel Reeves. Rachel, how are we? 
Oh boy, am I glad to be here today. <laughs> uh, but yes, I'm very excited to be here and even more excited to be talking about Phantasm. Excellent. And this is your choice, so I'm really excited. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> Joining us again, back after talking all things Esther on our Orphan Kills episode, he is trading in one lovable scamp for another from the Spectre Cinema Club podcast. Welcome back, Mr. Devon Taylor. Hello, hello. Yes, I'm excited to be back. And uh, yes, Orphan Kills. I like that uh, title even better than Orphan First yeah. Kill. It, it <laughs> seems like it, it was like a, a oh, nice for God's sake, Halloween <laughs> kills there. No, it, it makes sense. Halloween. Or we're gonna take the whole all day thing from the top again, starting from the beginning. <laughs> um, my bad. Hey, I am hopped up on cold medicine, so. I cannot be held liable for anything I say or do. Hey, this uh, this movie is very disorienting, so I, I get it. I totally get it. <laughs> yeah. But finally, we have a special first-time guest joining us. She's contributed to Ghouls Magazine, and you can find her work at our friends over at Certified Forgot. You can hear her on Hear a Scream in the Moving Pictures Film Club. Please welcome Miss Ari Powers Schaub to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Excellent. Thanks for joining us. It's always exciting to have new guests, new people to come on and speak with. Uh, so Long time am... listener, first time talker. Excellent. All right. So you know the drill then. So you know that before we dive into the movie proper, let's just take a brief second and kind of talk about like our initial thoughts on this movie. Um you know, what it means to us and why maybe it kind of inspires like such like fanaticism in the fans of the franchise. So Ari, as our guest, do you want to kick things off? Sure. Um, I so my first exposure to Phantasm was I had this DVD when I was like 13 and it was called Boogeyman. And it had all like a bunch of different horror like villains, like little profiles about them. And I watched it over and over and over and over and over again, because there were some movies that I had seen like A Nightmare on Elm Street. But then there were some movies that I had like never heard of and couldn't find, like The Uglies, which I think you can find more easily now. But at the time in my small town at my video store, I couldn't. So anyway, The Tall Man was featured on this DVD. And so all I knew about Phantasm for majority of my life was just like a tiny little snippet about the tall man and him walking through a mausoleum. So when I finally saw Phantasm for the first time a couple of years ago, I had really no idea what I was in for because in my head it was going to be all about the tall man and I mean, it kind of is, but he's barely in it, really. It's about you know, Jody and Mike and Reggie. Um, and the first time I watched it, I got really caught up in thinking, like, maybe I was missing some scenes because I was like, I feel like I missed something. Nothing makes sense. But everybody was like, no, it's supposed to feel that way. <laughs> so when I got to watch it again, I just kind of let it wash over me and just experienced the like atmosphere and the vibes of it. And I really fell in love with it. So I appreciate it a lot more now, but it took, it was like a winding road to get right. there. Excellent. And Rachel, this was your choice. Like you stepped up when I asked like, <laughs> what should we cover? And you're like, how about Phantasm? So what made you choose this series? What does this movie mean to you? Uh, well, it's funny. Cause like, I, so 
I was starting to get into horror. I was a little bit older and like starting to dig into it. And then I started working at the record store where I worked for years and years and years and years. And I heard about it from one of my now dear friends who worked there because like I had seen all the big ones, right? And a decent amount of deeper cuts, but he was, we're just, you know, bullshitting. And he suggests, he's like, oh, have you seen Phantasm? And I was like, what? No, what is that? And then saw it, we got a group of friends together and saw it and uh, blew my mind. I had never seen, I was like, what is this? this is insane. Like, this is completely like cuckoo bananas, bonkers, loved it. It was so wild. And especially like considering the year 1979, like I was even more surprised. It was kind of one of those. And then saw Phantasm 2. And that one is also just wild. But I'm excited to do this franchise because, spoiler alert, that's as far as my knowledge goes. Okay. So You and me both. I got the big old box set. I've got, you know, I've got the ball here with me. Um, Where did you get that? There was like a big giant box set that came with the sphere and all of the Blu-rays of the whole series. So I have them all. I'm ready. And I've just been waiting for an excuse to crack them all open and do a whole franchise watch. So this is it. This is my time. (laughs) That is so cool. Excellent. Devon, how about yourself? Yeah, so I have not seen any of these films. This was a first time watch for this one. And I mean, I hadn't heard of it until back in 2016 when Ravager came out. And then everybody was acting like it was like, oh, yeah, of course, you know, Phantasm, right? It's back. And I was like, wait, what do you mean? What I've never heard of this before. And then like people were acting like it. But apparently like it's, you know, across, you know, five movies over 37 years is like kind of wild. And um so it was weird that it like felt so low key and mysterious. And then like, as I like kind of saw things, I couldn't really make what it's about. I didn't read anything about it. I was like, I was like, all right, we got the tall man. We got the spear. Is it going to be like kind of a, uh, you know, low budget kind of slasher vibes? Um, is it going to be, you know, um, and then I kind of saw some of the nightmare on Elm Street comparison. So I was like, okay, is it be kind of dreamy and uh, wasn't expected to be as uh, cerebral uh, as it is. And just, yeah, kind of all over the place, confusing. I feel like I'm kind of more confused at the end of it than I was even going in. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like a sci-fi Stephen King Jalo movie. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of all over the place, but in a, in a really weird uh vibe that i love uh like late 70s horror is like kind of a sweet spot for me like as far as uh, like the aesthetic and tone and yeah uh, it still very much has that very 70s-esque you know feel to it and uh and i, I was about it I, I was there for the ride and i wasn't uh really uh, prepared to kind of go into some of these uh deeper theories that i kind of go into it about it you know uh why why it's so uh, predominantly male-centric and uh how it kind of differs from um, some of the, uh, the, the typical storylines that we uh, see in this vein. So yeah. uh, I'm excited to, I'm excited to dig into it. Excellent. I love how you're always like raring to jump in when we record, like haven't seen them, but you need someone like I'll step up. Hey, I'll I mean, absolutely do that. Is there always a, it's always a good excuse, obviously to like cross some of these off the list, but, um, absolutely. uh, but especially with this one, like you said, like, kind of mm-hmm. similar to like a, no basis, no prior knowledge of like anything about it. Yep. Yeah. For so, me. Ooh. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Mike. No, go ahead. Ariel. So am I the only one here who's seen all of them? I think yeah. you are. I think yeah. you are. Okay. I am so excited 
for all of you, you are going to go on a journey. <laughs> You're not ready. Just, I mean, no one can be. Excellent. Oh, oh my God. I am so excited for you. We are going to have to have you back on for a couple more. Shepherd us I, through. So Shepherd us. Just Excellent. Say the word and I am right. here because it goes. You think, this you is... think the first one was weird? Get ready. Can't wait. This is going to be like when we eventually do Saw, I believe Lindsay will come back and she'll have the cork board and she'll be <laughs> doing all the theories for that. So, Ariel, you're going to be our guide here and kind of walk us through because I have only seen the first two i think i've i saw the second one first i remember oh. you know being like a junior high kid and seeing the you know the tv spots for the second movie and like the ball is back and i'm like what is this this looks so freaking cool and then seeing the second one on vhs and thinking like it was a lot of fun um but it was probably years later before i watched this movie i don't even remember the first time I watched it, all I know is this movie makes me wish I did drugs because uh, <laughs> I am notoriously like just don't like terrified of all drugs. I really wish I could get fucked up and watch this movie because it just seems absolutely perfect for it. Um, it feels like a 70s prog rock album cover. That's just like sprung to life. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing is it feels like Phantasm fans are a different breed. Like when people when people say what their favorite horror movie is, anyone who mentions Phantasm, I'm like, all right, that is a cat that is on a different wavelength altogether. <laughs> and I mean that in a really good way. Like they're just like good. Like they're ready to dig deep and they want something that's going to be like just a bit trippier and a bit outside of the norm and they're um, and they're kind of low-key about it too yeah. because like you know there's there's the cult classics that like the 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 fans like are very fervent to like want to introduce people to mm -hmm. versus this one it's not that they like guard it but it's just like it's yeah. like oh well we'll let you discover it yeah. on your own time and we'll what we'll, we'll let you experience Sorry. this at you know when when the time is right for you okay. you know uh, which i find kind of interesting it's like, here's a Blu-ray and an edible. You have yourself a nice <laughs> little night, all right? <laughs> so I, the more I've watched this movie and the more that I've like read in preparing for this, like the more I appreciate it. And it's something that I can't watch it in one sitting. Like it to me is the perfect movie to like kind of drop in and out of for like 20 minutes because it's not really a cohesive narrative so much as it's a bunch of like really dreamlike scenes that are eventually stitched together and i think like i usually can watch up through mike uh in the mausoleum scene and then i'll like pause it go do something and then come back to it for another 20 minutes and it feels like the right way to watch it so All right I, mean, I was i was pretty like hypnotized in by it like especially like it, it, in the second half too it really that's like when it really starts getting like more trippy mm -hmm. uh and then like it, it like kind of locks you in because the, the the first half is like very much like what what is really going on like where where are we what are we doing uh where are we heading and then like once it like kind of sinks its teeth into you into like midway point then it's like kind of like okay now now you're in like if you weren't you, you had your chance to get off and if you didn't now now you're in <laughs> yeah the pacing of it is something else like it's, it's not afraid to really take its time and 
kind of linger on the characters in a way that doesn't necessarily drive the story forward, but it lets you kind of in on this found family, I think, in a way that I really appreciate rewatching it again. Um, but where I'd like to start before getting into the movie proper is maybe discussing the score, because I think this theme is just awesome, like composed by Fred Myro. Um, and I guess like Rachel, you're our resident. Like I would say, like I turn to you when it comes to all things music, when it comes to horror movies. And what is it about this score in particular that like works? Oh, well, I mean, it's got a great catchy theme right like it's just so melodic and it's just very lyrical so it's got those qualities just like a great pop song or something that it's going to get stuck in your head and so it's it's interesting because when Coscarelli was telling them like hey this is what I'm kind of looking for he specifically was like I want it to sound like Vangelis I want it to sound like Pink Floyd so he was already kind of in that vein of kind of you know, something a little electronic, something a little trippy. Um, but you pointed out in the notes, like it sounds a lot like Suspiria and like Goblin. And I like, I don't know. I haven't like read anything about them specifically citing those, but it has to be, it has to be like, this is, there's so many aspects of this movie that feel very Italian. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to, I mean, just before we get into it, this movie to me seems like Coscarelli has everything that he loved um, in life and he put all of it into one movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I think Italian cinema is in there because yeah. there's, I think there's some Fulci vibes, there's some Argento vibes. And with that comes a kind of score like this. So I think that had to have also been on the table because it feels yeah. very much like that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. it's, I was gonna, I just also, I have this in my notes because this song, because it's so catchy, has been sampled so much and so many times in like hip hop and rap and R&B songs. Like I have a whole list here, but, and I sent you the links because I encourage all of you to listen to them because they are fun. <laughs> that That's like so cool. Movie. Like I, cause I could totally hear like Jay Dilla, like sampling, like something out of this. And like, you know, like back in the day, like in that era and, oh, yeah. uh, and, and the, the, the score, I mean, does so much to just like really, you know, set the tone and aesthetic for it. And, but it, it takes it like, I, like there was a, the, the, the white room scene, like towards the end, like that track and like the, the way that they had like that, that humming down and like the, it, like everything about like literally like had my like chest vibrating. And it, like, I, I, I had to like stand up for some reason to watch this scene. I was like, I can't like sit down during this. Like it just like it, like it literally moved me in a way. And I was just like, Oh my gosh, like this is incredible. So uh, if you guys are watching uh, throw that subwoofer on, because I mean, oof, it is, it, it's a goodie. Like man, the scene rules. Well, and it's like a big presence too. Like that's what I love about it is like it's a very deliberate, intentional presence with the score. Like, you know, you go in and like people complain all the time. Like you, if you saw, you know, Batman or something, it's like, oh my God, it's like so loud. But here it's, I don't know, it's it's a little bit different, but it's it's intentional and it takes over the scene and also where they're placed. I think that has to do with a lot of like the technology at the time and how scores had to be made because you couldn't just do everything to picture. You just had to like compose these pieces and then they just were like, okay, I guess we'll put that cue here. Um, That kind of thing. So it's when you hear the score, I think it's always very intentional and 
really helps the scene. Yeah, and it's just trippy and helps sell all that weird surrealist stuff going on. It's great. And it plays so often throughout the movie, like that simple repetitive riff, like over and over, including moments like when you wouldn't expect it. Like you hear like, you know, Carpenter's Halloween score, like that plays when like Michael is nearby, mm-hmm. right? Um, the Friday the 13th score, like that plays like if Jason is lurking somewhere off camera, like it cues you in that like the evil is somewhere. This is so much different. Like you hear it, in scenes where Michael is just kind of like looking or running after Jody, like it's a daylight scene and it's almost more like a family drama than it is a horror movie. And it more cues you into the kind of ethereal nature of this film and the dreamlike nature of this film more so than like, it's a horror movie. It's also like in ways that aren't the same way. Like it's in the music in the background. You'll hear I can't like maybe it's more than their bar or something, but like the music that's in the background, it's like a band is playing it and it's the same melody, but it's completely a different style of music. Mm -hmm. And that happens a couple times where it is the same progression of, you know, notes and chords and melody. It's just presented in a little bit different way, which I think the way that the movie unfolds when you get to the very end I think that that really kind of helps support that because it is really dreamy and it's like, yeah, he's got, you know, he's hearing music, but it's presented in all these kind of different ways, even if you're not fully picking up on it. It's one of those little details that I think is just so cool. I think that Mike is stuck in a loop and I don't even quite know what I mean by that because every time I watch this movie, I'm like, What's real? What's not real? Is everybody alive? Who's dead? Like, I still don't feel like I have it figured out. But I feel like Michael is stuck in a loop of some kind, be that like mentally in his own head where he can't get unstuck from something, or like maybe in this like dream cycle. And the way the notes in the score just loop so easily when you're listening to them, it's just like those same seven or eight notes, just like over and over and over again. To me, that represents Michael's just being stuck in this loop of whatever it is that he can't get out of. And there's grief and anxiety and a ton of uncertainty. And he's just like running all around all the time, but never getting anywhere. The music just sort of reflects that. Yeah. Yeah, I really I really like that stuck in a loop. I I have my own thoughts on that. I put down here for later on when we discuss like the ending of this movie. So I definitely just made a note there and I want to kind of return to that and that kind of like repeating quality of this movie. Um, Because I don't think that Mike is experiencing the events of this movie for the first time. I think that this is like a repeated pattern and we're just kind of hopping into like one of an infinite numbers of ways that these dreams play out for Mike. And this is like a 90 minute kind of breakdown of uh, one pattern that he might be experiencing. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, because when you think about like the, 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 you know, dark pattern that he is in that he's just like, oh, like just people in my life just keep dying around me. Mm-hmm. And like, mm-hmm. I've just got to keep figuring out how to keep moving forward. I got to still stay strong and take care of myself and like figure out like, you know, how I'm going to live on. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's like it's an unimaginable, like, you know, like kind of terrifying loop to be in. But then 
it like it makes the movie can play in so many different ways because it's like you know what if um at the end uh you know it is true that jody did die and that he like had a bad dream but then you know jody died instead of like you know to like break the loop it was like okay well at least if he died like this is what happened we went on this grand adventure like thing Mm. happened and stuff to like you know just to break up like you know what the the loop that's in his mind so it's like it could play that way or it could still like you said like this is already happened and he's like kind of having like this like weird deja vu experience as well it's like it yeah. could go like either way and the music uh just kind of being ever present just like sets that that eerie ethereal like you know like what what kind of existence is this in this movie you know like you really don't know right what do we think of the opening of this movie to me the way this opens with tommy and the lady in lavender um having what looks like really kind of like lackadaisical uh (laughs) relations in the in the graveyard like there's something that just feels like wonderfully seedy about this opening scene and you know this is coming at the tail end of the golden age of like pornography where it would not have been uncommon to have like couples actually go to like an adult theater and go on a date. Uh, And it feels like the beginning of this movie, you're almost watching a porn, just the way like the, you know, Tommy lying on his back. It looks like young James Hetfield. So you get (laughs) baby Metallica (laughs) lying on his back and kind of like groaning and you cut to, and it is a body double uh, here. Like it's not the actress, like she was, she was I, I from reading um Dustin McNeil's book on Phantasm. She was horrified when the because she didn't want to do a nude scene. She brought her mom to the premiere screening and had to like explain to her mom, like, it's not me naked on <laughs> screen, but like it's a very deliberate close-up of this long silver dagger posed against a pair of breasts. Again, before slasher movie rules are a thing saying like sex equals death Mm. and i would not equate this to this is not really a slasher movie to me Mm -mm. but it's like still very early on like pushing that trope forward i mean there's i mean it's definitely like uh has like yeah that the the cd uh to it but it also like this is like again like as like the movie kind of went on and then i started thinking about this like opening more as i like i started thinking of these uh, these interesting gender dynamics like going in uh, going on in the film I was like you know because you know we see the flash that it's like the tall man and it's like so there's something already there that's like okay these you know men are being preyed upon by this uh, you know equal or you know even bigger man that's even scarier than them but now also seducing them as a woman uh, and then also like obviously you know it's nice to have the imagery of you know, um, it, instead of uh, the woman, you know, being naked and being the one, you know, her throat being slit, you know, her doing the penetrating here uh, is a is a nice little flip as well. So it's like there's there's there, there's some gender stuff. I'm gonna try and unpack it as we like uh, go on because I'm like, man, now I wish I would have watched this uh, not right before the recording to like let it marinate more. But <laughs> there's some stuff going on, and uh, I think this uh, this opening scene uh, definitely. Uh, introduces some of those ideas this is one of those things that feels very italian to me um 
I'm not exactly sure what he's trying to say with it. Honestly, I don't know exactly what Coscarelli is trying to say with any of it, but I think, I don't know if he is trying to say anything. I think he, like this movie feels like he's just having fun. Or maybe he's trying to like work it out real time too. He's like, I don't know. Like uh, there's some things that I don't know. Yeah. And I, you know, it's funny because Angus Scrim said that like this part, the tall man was, described to him as being an alien from another dimension and so it's almost like is it species kind of like that where it's like okay this is what the alien wants to like present itself as Mm -hmm. and like this is what you want right and so Mm -hmm. i think that that you know there's something to that where it's just and he's also putting it right up front which i think is like to grab people's attention i think it was um the director of slumber party massacre the woman who directed slumber party massacre who said like that's why she put like the locker room scene in front mm-hmm. because shower all- scene yeah because like you know all those yep, films yep. like had to have like a certain amount of tna so she just like put it up front and was like here it is okay now we can go on to the rest of the film mm-hmm. and so it's almost like you know he was probably doing it for very different reasons but just like all right here it is now i got you now we're going to do the rest of the if the events of this movie are a dream that michael is having which i'm not fully ready to commit to but if it is i think that explains the weirdness of the sex scenes in this movie because he's they say he's 13 13 oh yeah so he he doesn't know this is his idea of sex oh Right. And he's probably seen breasts. And so all we ever see are breasts and we don't really see anything else. They're just laying on top of each other. (laughs) It's just, they're just sort of like weirdly on top of each other, moving around and moaning. Like if this is a dream he's having, maybe that's all his mind can conjure for that. It's weird, you know, and it also explains a little bit more later in the movie when he hangs around to watch his brother have sex, which is very strange. But if that's something happening in a dream that he's not really choosing to see, like that could explain that. So mm. I don't know. When something's weird in this movie, I go, it's a dream. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know if that's <laughs> correct or not. What do we think of like the cutting between the lady in Lavender and the tall man? Are we to assume that they are one in the same like two different uh personas in the, you know different forms of the same persona i mean i think yeah i think he's like some sort of shapeshifter of, of some sort or or maybe not even shapeshifting uh because he can obviously like kind of uh manipulate like you know the things that you're seeing in your mind so like it might maybe it's just like a uh uh, illusion type thing but like i think it's you know the the two forms that he takes i think you know serve him the best for his you know uh whatever the plan is because obviously like as a mortician then he has access to these dead bodies but then as a woman he can seduce these men to get more dead bodies (laughs) yeah i always thought they're one and the same i think that that's what the cuts are the way it's edited is telling us you know, maybe it's, you know, it's, he's breaking, not breaking character, but like the, the victim, whoever, you know, whichever scene it's in, it, you know, catches a glimpse mm, mm-hmm, of the mm-hmm. real person. It's, you know, maybe it's not very strong or whatever, you know, it's like what predator when they get like damaged, just kind of see like a little glimpse of like what's underneath yep. a little bit. It's kind of like that. That's how I always yeah. interpreted it. Yeah, I think so. I think you're exactly right. That's what the editing is telling us. Yeah, and the the other thing as we're talking about this opening in Devon, you had mentioned how 
like turning the tables on your standard, like what you would typically see where it's like now like a very beautiful woman, instead of being the victim, like openly stalking her prey and seducing them and then killing them. Um, and we're going to talk in a little bit about like the influence of this movie, because I think it's had a lot of influence. It's, it's one of the more influential horror movies you see where it's kind of other filmmakers have like borrowed from it, uh, at least thematically. I am drawn to the opening of the television series of like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where the first scene you have is a uh, teenage boy and a teenage girl breaking into the school. And the way the male is portrayed, he's like your typical kind of like no good Nick, like too cool for school, pretty tough. He's the bad boy. And the young woman is played as like very shy, very kind of like we really shouldn't be here. What's that noise? And then the scene turns and you realize that like she's Darla, the vampire, and she is luring him in. And again, it's like using that something we don't see very often in horror and you're seeing it in that show. And I think you could say it, it's directly borrowed from what you see here in Phantasm. And the other thing, you know, I guess we'll jump into it now because we've mentioned its influence and also the word dreamlike a lot. I can't help, and I'm obviously not the first person to say this, but A Nightmare in Elm Street feels, and I love that's my favorite series, feels heavily indebted to this movie in that it feels like a more polished, more mainstream effort where phantasm is for your Friday night drive-in crowd. And maybe mm -hmm. your grindhouse cinema crowd Elm street is the let's pack the teenagers in on a Friday night for a good, like rock'em sock'em scare movie. Can we speak to the influence this might've had on Elm street? It's so interesting because, like, I hadn't really thought about it. Like, obviously, there's certain, like, the very last scene, I think, is like the mm -hmm. easiest, like, parallel to draw. And I hadn't really, like, thought about it too heavily, but it, it would make sense and on both, on both a, um, a visual and thematic level, but also on the fact you look at Coscarelli and Craven, and they're both at this time indie filmmakers. And so I would definitely think that Craven would be paying attention and notice because this film did really well, right? For what it mm -hmm. was and, and what they were able to pull off. So I would think that burgeoning filmmakers interested in making horror films would see this and be like, I'm going to do something like that right. and like take note of that. So even just the influence of what he was able to do on the budget he had and how he was able to successfully pull it off, I think would influence Craven a lot as a person. I mean, maybe and maybe even just on a subconscious level, because it's a it's a totally different because because I would because I would use the word cerebral more than I use dreamy for this movie. I feel like it's mm -hmm. a it's kind of a, a, a different uh, kind of disorientation because this one does kind of have uh, some slight sci fi vibes in them uh, as well. So it's like a, it, it's very it's a it's a very different vibe. Um, and I mean, yeah. And then maybe especially like that that end sequence um it could have been like a oh like i think you, we could do more with like that like you know element of the you know kind of uh you know what is real what's not real um but i don't think coscarelli was entirely like that was what he was uh wanting to explore in this movie as much um 
which is kind of hard to say. I'm not exactly sure what he, which part he was trying to explore the most out of this film, but uh, I don't think it was that angle. So like maybe Wes uh, could have seen that and been like, okay, like I'm going to take like, you know, like I, I want to explore that idea and like in doing it more in a sleep and dream uh, way is a little bit easier and like kind of more uh, streamlined uh, to kind of explore those ideas versus in this one, it's kind of like a, you know, uh, you know, in your mind, different kind of plane of existence, but then in a physical space and like all these other kind of things. So uh, a little bit more going on. Yeah. I think especially the music and the sound design Mm -hmm. um, between Phantasm and the original A Nightmare on Elm Street, Um, because you've got in A Nightmare on Elm Street, you've got another really earwormy tune that just sticks with you that's just a handful of notes that just do everything you need them to right away and also I don't know quite how to describe this but you know in A Nightmare on Elm Street there are weird sounds in the dreams like I hear that in Phantasm 2 well Phantasm as well and I don't think of that kind of sound design and other sort of slashers at the time. Like mm-hmm. A Nightmare on Elm Street stands out from the other, you know, big slasher franchises for different reasons. But I think one of them is the music and the sound design being really unique. And I can connect that back to Phantasm, whether that was purposeful or not. The connection seems pretty clear. Yeah. I think what's interesting about, so I, I would agree, like the sound design of this movie lends a lot to it you have that kind of like discordant mix of animal sounds and screams and like you said devon the kind of sci-fi influence like almost like an alien or unearthly sound and they're all kind of mixed and channeled together and i think what's interesting is both phantasm and elm street exist at pretty unique to them times in like horror movie history in that you know Elm Street comes out after the golden age of slasher movies. It's kind of died down. They're not killing it at the box office anymore. And like, you know, Friday the 13th was supposed to be wrapped up and finished. And they're not hitting that. Like every week you're not getting a new slasher. And Elm Street comes after that golden period and then kind of kickstarts a new one. And it gets to do its own thing because it feels less beholden to those typical slashers. Mm -hmm. Phantasm. It was filmed like basically concurrently with John Carpenter's Halloween. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously Halloween beats it to the theaters by a year, but that is essentially like a studio, you know, it's considered an independent film, but it's essentially a studio production where Phantasm is basically Coscarelli and friends on his father's dime, essentially on weekends filming Phantasm over the course of a year. And then over the course of close to another year, stitching it together. So by the time it had come out, it had been a couple years since it started, and it exists in between Halloween and Friday the 13th. So you get a very unique movie that doesn't have to necessarily be drawing too much from these other two really big tent poles. Uh, So it gets to kind of do its own thing and influence other movies in its own way. And what I really love about how this movie portrays dreams, you never see someone wake up from a dream. Like you have that jump scare of like Michael in bed and the tall man posed over it. 
Uh, and then like you're kind of like zombies coming up and pulling Michael down and it cuts, but it doesn't cut to him in bed, waking up from a nightmare. It just goes to another scene mm-hmm. and it shares with Elm street that way where dreams feel off by just a few degrees, but you roll with it. Like you accept that unreality. Um, and what I really like, what really struck me in my last rewatch is Michael is always where he needs to be. Even if, you know, like Jody is driving to the cantina lounge in his Barracuda and Michael is already there peering in the window and he's yeah. either walked there or rode his bike mm-hmm. there. He's at the graveyard when he needs to be there. He's always just a step behind Jody. So that kind of like dreamlike mode of transportation, it's just magic works here and you never really question it. Well, it's kind of like uh, it's like that effect of like when you do have a dream and especially like um, like when you wake up in the morning and then you like go back to sleep and you only go back to sleep for like a little bit. But in that like small little bit, you uh-huh. have like the that's when you have like the full on like full length movie dream that you remember, even though it like happened like such a like small amount of time. So like it's like kind of inverting it in a way that like, you know, in nightmare, it's like, you know, they're, they're very separate. Like when you're awake, you're awake when you're asleep or asleep versus in this one, there's kind of that, that concurrency to it because of with these uh, time kind of skipping around stuff. And, and I am curious because, you know, on my podcast, we kind of dissect subgenres and, and we've, you know, thrown it around a lot, but would you guys really consider this movie a slasher? Cause I, I wouldn't, um, I especially just because of the the wide range of tones that it, it exhibits, but then also uh, the wide range of examples, because uh, you said uh, Nightmare on Elm Street would be pretty indebted to this movie. But I could say that as equally to like under the skin, even uh, definitely is pretty indebted to this movie in a, in a weird way. No, I don't think this is a slasher. Mm-hmm. And usually I don't get too particular when people are like, oh, you know, this is that. I'm like, oh, tell mm-hmm. me why. But I'd have a hard time. I mean, slashers are like the most formulaic, like the most defined subgenre. Mm-hmm. I would have a hard time putting Phantasm into that. So love, well, I'd love to hear an argument otherwise. But Yeah, I, I would file this more under sci-fi horror. Than anything and i know rachel you mentioned like italian horror and like it feels almost like an american not quite giallo in some ways but like a kind of like supernatural movie yeah well and it's also just like that surreal quality that i think a lot of like giallo films have um especially like after this even mm-hmm. like the way some a lot of those italian movies go like it's just kind of that dreamy illogical weird villain you know just the direction of that kind of the vibe of giallos not even necessarily the, the super particulars i guess it's yeah. just the vibe <laughs> yeah and and there's like more things like kind of going on because i think yeah like slashers are just like so much more uh easier to define because like they they have one thing they're 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 doing the thing and they're you know they're to slash well, and, and it's like I think when there's just an iconic character attached, it's like easy to like call it that, you know, to be like, oh, yeah, like be, it, kind of in the same way. It's like, yeah, people loop Pinhead in with all the other slashers, but we all know Hellraiser's not a slasher movie, you know, like I, of in yeah. that vein. I also just think like American horror at this time was doing, I mean, 
these are broad strokes. So nobody like come at me, but like was doing slightly different. Like, even if you're looking at Craven, like you've got last house on the left, you've got the Hills have eyes. Like these are talking, even Halloween, like these are like suburban, like the people kind of, there's lots of cultural things going on there. And then this is like kind of out there in a completely different way. Like not exactly sure what this is saying. This is very dreamy. This is really weird and sci-fi. So, which is interesting because then you see Nightmare on Elm Street, which is, you know, you look at Hills Have Eyes to that, very different in terms of what they were, maybe, you know, there's still threads that connect them as far as what maybe it was saying, but you've got some very different feel feelings there. So I could also see Craven looking at this, knowing, developing maybe Nightmare on Elm Street and taking some pointers for sure. I hear that. I hear that. What do we think of, let's talk about some of these characters a bit. Because I think that where this movie, its greatest strength lies in its core villain, uh, in its core characters. Like I really like Mike as a protagonist and it's it's interesting watching you know for like a hard r smart cerebral movie not really geared towards younger kids like this is not what i would call like a gateway horror movie for you know like young teens to have it focused on this 13 year old boy is a really interesting choice because he feels like a 13 year old boy he doesn't feel like a kid that is older than his years uh and i think like a michael baldwin in this role like he's fantastic in this performance oh man i i I was i love mike mike is a this this kid is great um i love the performance and like you said like he feels aged as in a yeah he's a 13 year old kid but he also is a 13 year old kid that his whole like half his family is dead so it's like he does still have like that maturity to him to a degree but at the same time it's like um, you, you see, I feel like, you know, half of his journey is him, you know, realizing that it's like, okay, even though all this has happened to you, like, it's okay to like, still be scared and like, to like, to, to be afraid and to like, not, uh, understand everything going on around you. Like, you know, he has this, uh, just, you know, desire to just, to just know, like, that's, that's literally what the whole movie is. Like, he, he doesn't know what he's trying to figure out. He's just like, I don't know. It's just weird, man. I, I just need to figure this out. And like, that's yeah. kind of his whole thing. Um, and, and he just like, you know, at the, at the end of the movie, it's not like he like has this like great triumph. It's just like, kind of, um, in, in a way that he's again, like, he's just like, I just kind of got to figure out how to live with whatever is happening. Like I can't uh, be as caught up, like trying to, trying to like figure things out. So um, he has a very interesting arc and, and that's kind of what I was, um, you know, alluding to earlier that uh, I I wanted to pose the question because Chandler Bullock, he, he had put out a tweet a couple of days ago and it was talking about um, finding a, a term uh, equivalent to final girl like oh do we or do we need like a, a, a universal term for the two of them and which kind of led to interesting discussions on like you know there is kind of reasons to have separate terms because I think the the the, the arcs between final girls and final boys if you will I kind of call everyone a final girl that's just my my take because you know we coined it there first and everyone but um, you know, in the, there's, there's kind of two different ways that like, you know, the typical final girl arc, uh, seems to be like a, uh, hardening themselves through the experience and like kind of overcoming the fear of the world around them 
versus the for the the guys it's like no we kind of need to like be able to deal with like the fear within themselves like they have like more emotional uh work to kind of do at least for uh mike and jody here so was kind of intrigued to uh get your guys opinions on that i mean i think that's a an interesting way to look at it that i hadn't looked at it before so i definitely think there's something there about that i also i i also just I like how emotional he is, the range of emotions that we see him. Like he feels like a very frustrated, you know, You when kids, I think, especially at a certain age, I mean, I don't know, I was this way. When you're going through some shit, it's just like lots of anger. It comes out in interesting right. ways, right? And so I think <laughs> you see that here where it's, and clearly there's like some deeper things, which I also think they're, it's pretty good at conveying that like clearly this, he's terrified of losing his brother he's lost his parents. So there's, there's all these other issues going on. And I do think that's conveyed pretty well. And then you see it come out with kind of these outbursts and riding his motorcycle through the graveyard, you know, kind of doing these like harmless, but little rebellious sort of things. He's a badass. Oh, sorry. Are you? No, you go ahead, Mike. No, go ahead. Cause I'll go on a rant here. So, (laughs) um, I was just going to say, Michael feels like to me, like when I look back on being a young teenager, like, like I, when I think of like coming of age horror or gateway horror, it gives you the feeling of being that age, you know, like stranger things, you're really riding with the emotions of the kids that age and you're like kind of placed in their mindset. We're more over the shoulder of Michael throughout Phantasm. And so it gives me the idea of trying to remember what it felt like to be 13. And like, I have vague memories of like being angry and being depressed and like other, like big things that were going on in my life, but not really the day-to-day minutiae of like, you know, oh, this thing happened at school and it really embarrassed me or whatever. So like Michael in the movie feels to me like a memory of being 13. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's a kind of memory of the 13-year-old that I might want to be. Yeah. I mean, he is, we're introduced to him like riding a motorcycle. Like you said, Rachel, like riding a motorcycle through a graveyard. Like, that's cool. All right. Yeah. I had like a huffy banana seat bike <laughs> with like <laughs> twin pegs at 13. Um, he's working on muscle cars. Like he's able to like fix cars. Like I, I put it in my notes here, the... um find this line here because i really fucking liked it the let 13 year olds drive barracudas without supervision you fucking cowards challenge like (laughs) no it's the 70s so it's i guess it's totally okay to let your barely a teen kid drive without a license like your fucking badass muscle car it was Um, a different time it's totally (laughs) different i mean i remember being super young and like we didn't have car seats we had like my parents had this giant like lime green cutlass supreme oldsmobile <laughs> that like had vinyl seats and you would like not wear a seat belt and just slide all through the back like <laughs> we would ride in the back of our uncle's pickup truck like and he'd be bombing like 50, 80 miles an hour down the highway and it was just like the late 70s early 80s man like nobody was calling protective services <laughs> like they would now you see that now and you'd be horrified um 
what's interesting about Mike is he is running towards the danger in this movie. Like he's not actually in any danger at the outset of this movie. He sees something that he shouldn't have and he can't let it go. Like he sees the tall man do something that's not even evil. It's just weird <laughs> uh, when the tall man like picks up this casket and puts it in and he can't let it go. And all of it is in service of like, if I have something that will keep Jody here, he can't leave. So I'm going to break into the mausoleum. I am going to, you know, like chop off these fingers and take them with me. I'm going to ride, you know, I'm going to like stalk this person all in the service of like, I need my brother to think he still has to protect me. Otherwise he might leave me and I'll be left alone again. Cause really what this movie is. And I like that, you know, we know that the parents are dead and he, you know, Michael could hang out with Jamie Lloyd and ham head and field and have kids go like, you know, Michael's an orphan and sing to him and <laughs> be really vicious like in Halloween four. Um, but he just doesn't want to be left alone again. He just wants his big brother to stay with him. Yeah. It's just an attempt to take power back. It's something mm -hmm. that he has, you know, no control over right he had no control it just happened and there's nothing he can do so this is maybe his way of like i'm gonna do something i'm gonna try right. like i can fix this i'm gonna try like maybe if i do this yeah. maybe if i do this you know? and and he's about that action too like he really is like uh the the moment when he uh breaks out of his room by putting a shotgun shell on the end of a hammer i was like who is this uh yeah. this macgyver kid like god damn like he pre kevin McAllister. He, yeah. he will not be stopped uh you know similar to 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 my girl esther that i was saying in the in the orphan first kill episode like i love these characters that um you know they're they're kind of superpowers just their their mm -hmm. sheer will like this kid is jumping out of the back of hearse and and you know he's always strapped himself he's got a pistol in his um back pocket uh most guns i've seen uh, uh again in scream Wes craven i don't know maybe he, he did uh look at this mm -hmm. a lot because uh, lots of gun action in this too right uh, uh, between both boys <laughs> it's just like a young boy going to an elder you know, because there were no counselors for him back then, like mental health, mental health back then. We're not, you know, we're repressing those feelings, folks. It's the late seventies. Um, and he's going to this woman saying like, I saw something I'm not supposed to see and I'm scared. What do you think I should do about it? And you have the flashbacks to the cemetery, but you also have the flashback to him working on the car and Jody, who we're going to get to here in a minute, being like, yeah, you know, I love the kid, but I'm kind of tired of being a surrogate parent. I'm just going to drop him at my aunt's and kind of hit the road and do my own thing. Um, I don't know, like that. I don't I go back and forth. I'm not sure why that scene is in here with the whole fortune teller scene, because it ends up being fairly inconsequential. I do. But it also feels really important. So, Rachel, why do you feel it's in here? Because Coscarelli liked Dune. Okay. <laughs> okay. Like Thank I, you. Yeah. I was going to bring this up. <laughs> I think that he read Dune. I think it had a huge impact because the movie's not out yet. Even though this is also feels very David Lynchian in some parts, not out yet. But I, you know, maybe he saw Racerhead. I don't know. But I think that 
Yeah, I think he read Dune. I think this is mm-hmm. goes to my point of this is Coscarelli putting everything that he loved. He loved Star Wars. He loved action movies. He loved horror movies. He loved Italian horror. He loved Dune. Like he put all of that into one movie. And I think that this is this. And then you've got the the bars called Dune's Cantina. Dune's Cantina. Star Wars Dune. <laughs> so I think that that is that's why he put that in there i think he liked the idea of you know fear is the mind killer right isn't that what they say in dune like i will not fear fear is the mind killer like i think something about that really spoke to him and he latched onto that and put it in the movie (laughs) i mean it's it's i mean it's the moment for you know michael's the 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 start of his hero's journey you know for at least in in his mind you know like uh he's uh, you know, he's going to them for advice. And on, on one angle, it's like almost kind of sad because it's like when you kind of think about it, he has to have his parents for a couple of years. Probably the only feminine advice he's getting these days. Um, you know, he spends most of his days with Reggie when Jody's not around, I'm sure. Um, so it's like he kind of, you know, goes to them. And, uh, you know, again, he's he's looking for something, you know, so uh, ooh, let me go get my fortune told. And then, of course, uh, the fortune teller t- says something ominous that is exactly what he needs to hear to where he's like, all right, I'm going to go go back and I'm a, I'm going back in. And like, this is uh, the start of my journey now. So like kind of feels uh, just like kind of like that, you know, but it, the, but then it's like also like sad in the way that when we see it's like, you know, that they're just scamming them. And uh, I, I you know it's like ah uh, but at the same time it's it's what he are needed, they scamming I, him? I don't know if they're scamming him i don't that, think they are that that chuckle sounded very mischievous when they're just like ah, ha, 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 like ah we got another one like no. uh, the, the, I, I don't know man she's making boxes disappear she's doing yeah. i mean that advice. is true she did i mean it, it, it wasn't an illusion i suppose or is it because or is this part the dream ah, mm-hmm. they don't know <laughs> I mean, that's also a Dune thing because like the women in Dune or a certain group of women in Dune also have like the Mm. telepathic abilities, you know, that kind of thing. Like, so I think the whole, all of it, every single aspect of this scene is Dune. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. Yeah. I never got the feeling she was scamming him. Like when I watched that scene, I thought there was like a pretty genuine scene. I just have, I know it's important, but just like I said, have, but I think you're right. So so you're feeling, I, and I'll be, Dune is one of those properties I know even less about than the latter Phantasm movies. Like I've never read it, never watched any of, like, haven't watched Lynch's movie, didn't oh. watch the uh, reboot of it. So, and I think I need to at some point. Oh, yeah. Doesn't Timmy put his hand in a box? Yeah, I haven't seen it yes. either, but I remember that part from uh, from the trailer. Okay. Literally yeah. the oh, whole fortune telling oh, scene is Dune, Yeah, li- literally this scene. You're going to see it yeah. and you're going to be like, don't. Oh, my God. All right. Excellent. Well, and let's... Dune's Cantina. Can't ignore it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let's talk the sidekick characters here. Let's talk jody it's a big brother and there's only one note here that we have about jody and i love it rachel so <laughs> rachel give us your description of jody uh budget han solo excellent and why would do he say that <laughs> the hair the jacket the swagger mm-hmm. i just think that i mean i'm telling you he loves sci-fi and you got the star wars influence here and it's just got that you know this came out two years after star wars like he this is this guy's styled like Han Solo. He's but he's mm-hmm. also very, very sweet. 
And I love the dynamic that he has with Michael. Like that's one of the best things about this is just the the relationship between these these three leading men is just feels very sweet. He's yeah. never he's never like that asshole big brother. He's never like, you know, Chet from Weird Science or whatever. Like he's just a very sweet, loving older brother who is looking out for his little brother. I mean, um, he's very human about it, you know, even when we do have that scene where he's talking about like, oh, like, you know, I kind of don't want to do this. I you know, want to drop him off with our aunt. And it's, you know, obviously it like comes off and sounds selfish. But at the same time, when you're a young adult and like he's only 24, you know, and like and it was kind of thrust upon him by unfortunate circumstances. And, you know, as yeah. much as we hate to admit it, like that's a very human response to be like, you know, I don't know if I want to do like, you know, I I love him. I like he obviously does. Like um he loves him very much, but he's just like the you know, I don't know if I can do this myself, you know. So it's um, you know, he's a, he's very human in that way. Yeah. <laughs> and then, like Michael is Luke and you know, they've got that like you know, just like, no, I want to date Leia. No, I want Oh wait. No. Okay. <laughs> and there's something still endearingly awkward about him. Like when he is with like the lady in lavender he feels like inexperienced do you know what i mean like the way like she's obviously someone that has a lot more experience in like matters of the flesh than jody does who seems almost like it's his first time in some ways uh and just like the react like, this movie is unintentional i think like i think a lot of the humor is unintentional uh, but I don't think that it makes it camp at the same time. Like when he like comes up in his underwear, her underwear is in his teeth and he's like, Jesus Christ, what the heck is going on here? It's really sweet. Um, yeah. I think he loses a little bit of the cool factor too. Like the scene of him just kind of like nonchalantly pedaling his three speed bike down the street <laughs> while Jody, like there's something that you automatically lose a few cool points there. And I think that's a good thing in this case. Yeah. You know, he's, he's, uh, you know, again, like we, we don't really know much of the backstory. I mean, but there's like little insinuations as like, he like left to like pursue his music career and yeah. stuff. So, you know, he kind of is, you know, has that, Oh, I'm, you know, reluctance back in yeah. town, but like trying to make the best of it while also again, like trying to like, you know, do, do the best they can for his brother. Like he's a, yeah. he's just a, he's a very, just like kind of normal, normal guy, which I, yeah. which I do appreciate. I love when he says, I don't get off on funerals, man. It's like, <laughs> uh, yeah, no one does. Does, does somebody? <laughs> is that a thing? I think they probably, but probably. the tall man does. Yeah. The tall man definitely does. <laughs> yeah, there needs to be. Line. I think we've gone long enough with the wedding crasher being so far behind us. We could do a sequel like the funeral <laughs> crash. Actually, that is the end of wedding crashers. Like that is Will Ferrell's character. Like goes yeah, to yeah. So there are definitely people that that is their bag. They get off on it. Um, Speaking of like sidekicks, I Reggie Bannister is Reggie, the world's like coolest ice cream man. Uh, I love this character and I love that. You know, it's funny. Like this is like Reggie Bannister went on to be in a ton of like B horror movies, like above and beyond the Phantasm series. But in between this movie and the second movie, he really doesn't do anything in terms of acting in. I love him here. Like, 
when he says that after they play, you know, sitting here at midnight and they end and he's just like, yeah, we're hot as love. Like that is just <laughs> such a great fucking line. Like, oh, all business owner, Reggie. Yeah. It's his own ice cream company. Mm-hmm. He's got it on the side of his truck. It says Reggie's. He's a self-made man. Mm-hmm. I really love him. And I do love the thing about the seventies. Everybody looks really old, even when they're young, like he's in his twenties and like, he's super bald and just like, doesn't give a shit. He's just making it work. I mean, Reggie really just rolls with the punches. Cause one of my favorite things is like, um, you know, Mike is trying to convince Jody that like, you know, we are shit's going on, blah, blah, blah. And it, and it takes him to steal one of the, the, chopped off you know living fingers to bring to him and like show it to him when joey's like okay i believe you (laughs) reggie doesn't need that reggie just Mm -hmm. goes what are we doing guys you need me to drive where you need me to do this like all right i got you like he's he's literally just down like and Mm -hmm. that's and everybody needs a friend that's literally just down when you when you say we should be so lucky you know everybody needs a friend like reggie everyone needs a reggie in their with ice cream You want me oh, to definitely. transport a body in my ice cream truck? What? Sure. <laughs> and his only Got worry you. is like, it's not going to make the ice cream stink, is it? Like, it's exactly. not going to. Because that's his. He bought it because it's his business. Yeah, yeah. I love Reggie. Priorities. I, I love how he genuinely cares for Mike as well. Yes. Like, there's that, like, he likes having him around. Like, there's that scene where he's like, hey, man, it's going to be a hot day. Like, do you want to come help me sling some ice cream and do some crowd control for me? And he's like, the action's going to be hot and heavy out there today. Like, fucking love it. Just right. I, I like because I would hate like, um, you know, everyone hates that uh, when, when you have an older sibling and then their friends are like really mean to you and they just suck. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, why are you friends with them? They're so mean to me. It's like, no, Reggie's mm-hmm. the complete opposite. Like, no, yeah. like, of course. Yeah, I want you around. Like, yeah, love that energy. And it, it helps that Mike is a cool kid too. Like it really does. Cause I remember growing up, like one of my best friends growing up, like his younger brother, like pissed on his basement wall and then blamed like one of his friends, like our friends. And so that kid was like then banned from the house for like six months. So <laughs> it helps that like Mike is not doing things like that. Mike is just like, I want to like fix cars and ride my motorcycle. Like, and you know, like, Perv and my brother when he's doing it, you know, like that's all right. Maybe that last one we could do without. So, (laughs) but with Reggie, you also like what makes him so great is that final scene by the fireplace. Like it's like a genuinely warm and emotional scene. Mm -hmm. Like you can see like, all right, not only is he a great friend of Jody and a great like sidekick, but like there is something like very paternal about him. And like, he's obviously lost his best friend, And now he's taken in his younger brother and he's not sugarcoating things, but he's like able to be there, like be vulnerable for him, allow Mike to be vulnerable, be emotional. Like it's a beautiful scene. And to be honest, it's what like Coscarelli says, like why he brought Reggie Bannister back for part two. He's like, you Mm -hmm. know, that's what let me know. Like this guy really can act is that moment. I agree. It's It's like, I love I love that, like, whether that scene is real or a nod or a dream or whatever, it, like, still holds the same mm-hmm. sentiment, you know, and yeah. it's still just, like, yeah, a very, a very nice moment. Yeah. And it's just nice that they, they, they had that on there, you know, especially, yeah. like, at the end of the movie. It's, like, they didn't need to have it, but they did. Yeah. And I love well, it. And also, it lets us know, like, okay, so he might, you know, Michael might not be okay right now, 
but he's got Reggie, so he yeah. will be. Yeah, like he's, mm-hmm. you know what I mean. Like it doesn't leave mm-hmm. the character hanging, just like you know, because it's a dream. Like if it all is all real, it's like okay, clearly he's going through something. You feel good leaving him, knowing that he's got Reggie, and like mm-hmm. he'll be he'll be okay. Yeah. Let's shift things over now to someone who's decidedly not okay. Let's talk about <laughs> Angus Grimm as the tall man. One of the genuinely most frightening characters in horror. And again, it's like very much like Robert Englund. Like when you hear Robert Englund speak, he's so warm and funny and charming. And he's got like a story for everything. And you just love him. Um, Angus Scrim, like very as was a gentleman who was like writing liner notes for albums and was like doing stage plays and seemed like such like a genuinely warm and nice presence in real life, but he was terrifying in this role, just so intimidating. And what's funny, I found this quick this little video, and it's like basically all of his lines from this movie, the all the Phantasm movies, mm. and in five movies, he has about eight and a half minutes of actual speaking dialogue. Wow. And like yes. four minutes of it is him saying boy. boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah. I, I, I mean, talk about a, a just great presence. Like I love, like I, I saw like a little note that they like to make them even more imposing. They like had him on like platform shoes and like mm-hmm. in a, a suit slightly too small for him, which I, which I love. Um, and uh, yeah, he just, uh, I love whenever I'm watching a performance and I go, what are they doing? But like in a good way, like, cause like there's like certain movements and stuff. And I like uh, the idea that he is like an alien and like, I guess, is this how you work a human body? Uh, like, you know, he's like still like kind of figuring it out. He'll like do like two, like very like stilted moves. And then he'll just like kind of take off and like uh, just, uh, just little things like that. And like uh, his like weird hand motions, like uh, he's doing just all kinds of weird things and um, I'm here for it. Yeah. I also I also think that his theater background really comes into play here because he understands the power of movement and you mm-hmm. see that and his face like he doesn't have to say a lot of things because this is a person who has full control over every inch of his body and understands how to use it and you see that here so I I, I fully believe his theater background is totally on display here and he just he sells it so well. Yeah, and I think that what the scene I go back to the most is that scene in broad daylight when Michael is just walking down, you know, the town's main square having a Tootsie roll. And, you know, the tall man is not in the graveyard. He's not in the mausoleum. He is out and about in public, like as a public figure. And, the power of like using that kind of power walk, like swinging the arms back and forth while looking like straight ahead with just absolute purpose. What do we make of like him getting, is he trapped in the cold from Reggie's ice cream truck? Is it, is it like he's drinking it in? Cause it feels good. Like he's actually enjoying it, but there's almost something orgasmic about the way he reacts mm. to this, that it feels wrong. And it's a little I mean, thing. It feels wrong. Yes, have Ariel. you ever smelled an ice cream truck? They smell amazing. Ariel, look at me. Do I look like a man that hasn't 
smelled his fair share of ice cream. I always I always read it as like that he was just out and about, but then he senses or smells Michael. Ooh, okay. So that's how I I think Reggie was just there and it was a good excuse to get the the mist and have an incredible shot because I also think there's some really amazing just cinematography in this movie like there's some really beautiful shots when he knew exactly what he was Mm -hmm. doing and it worked so well and i saw that i mean i have the blu-ray and the like the remaster and it looks so good um but yeah i always read it just read it as him like sensing michael there Mm -hmm. they they have this thing right yeah he was he was just kind of out doing his thing taking in taking in the sense and uh (laughs) like it literally looks like a cologne commercial that that little sequence i love it (laughs) And uh, yeah, so I I don't read anything more into it than that. But like, yeah, maybe uh, some sort of uh, a sense to Michael, um, you know, he, he but he wasn't planning on it at that moment. Mm-hmm. I think it shows us how small Michael's world is because oh, yeah. he's out in his community and then he sees two of the other people who are really big in his life at that time. And I'm from a very, very small town. And so like, I can relate to that kind of experience, but I also think it lends some credence to the idea that like Mike is stuck and can't move off something because like, even when he's out on a walk, he sees Reggie and he sees the tall man. It's like, he can't escape Mm. these things that he's stuck on. Mm-hmm. It's gonna come get Reggie next, and he's like, Watch like, out, oh, he's right there, you know. Well, that's what he's afraid of, yeah. right? Like this fear that everybody sure. loves and cares about, and then he just shows up right there, and he's like, oh, this guy, oh, and the, and, I like and this the, read, <laughs> and and the casualness of it too is like what really adds to the creepiness. It's always like, yeah, like just like when they're just kind of out doing these like mundane things, and like, and even the thing that like spooks uh, Mike to begin with isn't even like anything like i mean it's weird but like not like super crazy ways like oh yeah like watch them like lift up this coffin you know so it's not even like he was like doing something like grandiose but it's like it's just weird enough to where it's like oh like kind of tips you off to but again it it, but it's like you could almost try to be like oh well maybe it was on that machine in the car or maybe that but like you know, so it, it like straddles that line, but it's always around just like kind of these like mundane things in his life. Yeah. And I, when you watch your typical horror movie, like part of me wants to know what Michael Meyer does the other 364 mm-hmm. days of the year. Like, what if there was some deleted scene where he's like a cashier at a Target, you know, <laughs> just kind of, and then he's like, oh, it's October 31st, it's clobber in time, you know, or, <laughs> You know, like Jason Voorhees is pretty much chill unless you go into the woods. Like, I kind of like this idea of like the tall man just existing in the community. He's running, he's another small business owner. Like, he's running, (laughs) you know, I mean, he has at least one employee, uh, human employee in his thing. So, you know, he, again, it's another member of the thriving business community. What if he and Reggie were like, look, we need to run like a promotion? You know, like we could store the stiffs and the ice cream truck and maybe oh. we could do like ice cream bars with like the corpse's face on them for the funeral and give those out. You know, listen, okay, well, listen tall I man. Want that. <laughs> yeah, listen, tall man. You people are sad after funerals. You know what makes people happy? Ice, ice cream. cream. Honestly, totally. that's a great <laughs> idea. Imagine if the tall man was your manager. 
Oh my gosh. I don't want the that review is about interview. to begin. Yes. Yeah. So, oh my God. Everything about him is so perfect in this movie. Um, that mo- let's talk the sphere that and that whole mausoleum scene because I think that is a 10 minute, like it that is a short movie would be perfect yeah. in and of yeah. itself. Um, and it's got everything, it has like that kind of youthful fantasy of like a young kid being out where he's not supposed to be late at night, breaking into somewhere creepy. And he's got like his Bowie knife strapped to the athletic sock, um, (laughs) hiding, like when he's hiding in the coffin, like I couldn't do that. Like that, Mm -hmm. I find that so unnerving and it just like itches me in the wrong way. But when you're a kid, you're not afraid of death in the same way, I think. So also it's just like, meh. Yeah, the 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 whole sequence is it's really fun. Um, if I had um, a couple complaints in the movie, not enough sphere. I thought mm-hmm. there was uh, I, I did not anticipate there being more of the the zombie dwarves uh, than uh, sphere shenanigans going on. But uh, but when we do get it, though, is really dope. I, I really love um, I really love just like uh, this, like this uh, mausoleum area. Uh, in general, because it just it feels so like otherworldly, like it doesn't like, you know, this is in Midwest wherever. But then like you go inside of that and it feels like this, like, you know, maybe like very decadent Italian, you know, more very, mm-hmm. you know, palace or something, you know, when you go in, it just it the, the stark difference is uh, very fascinating. But uh, the, the set design on it is just fantastic. But I also think how sterile it is. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah is part of what adds to how scary it is. Everything is so clean. Like we're used to like, you're, this is coming into an era where we're now moving away from like Gothic mansions and cobwebs and like kind of like ramshackle old castles on a mountain hill. Now, you know, horror is moved into the suburbs. And what you have here is this place that is sterile. It is clean. It is antiseptic. And it feels so devoid of any life and any joy that it just seems to wear the life out of you. Like being in that environment just seems to sap the life out of you. Yeah. I mean, it feels like this is like Twin Peaks, right? Like this is this is David Lynch right here. Like the mausoleum. It's so it just blows my mind. Yeah. That's like that wasn't even out yet. Mm-hmm. But like that whole scene with the busts and everything. And it, yeah, it's just so cold and just wild does not match the exterior of that building right. but i yeah i love that it's like once you open in the doors it's like a, it's a whole other world right it's mm-hmm. like it transports you to a whole other world which is what it literally mm-hmm. does <laughs> it's like a it feels like a purgatory because i mean i guess like that's kind of like if you think about what yeah. your bodies are like it, it's kind of like the the in between like where your body is in between like your your funeral and whatever else is going to happen so it's like kind of feels like that like just like to a to a heightened degree like it feels like very like neutral like it almost feels like that room would like you go in it's like oh, i don't feel hot but i don't feel cold either like yeah. it feels just like like so like very neutral in a in a but like in an unsettling way yeah. what this say you movie, are, it has the most it, it has the worst possible answer to what happens after you die which is a question i think most people ask at some mm-hmm. point and whatever answer you land on i i think it's a it's a thought we can't help having and if the answer is an alien shrinks you down and turns you into a slave on a red planet 
with a never ending line to stand in. I mean, that's a horrible answer. Mm -hmm. And like yeah. Mike's parents died previously. He's probably unfortunately had to think about what happens when you die. I'm not sure how long ago they died. Two but years. It's a two years. Okay. Yeah. Mm. So when he was 11, his parents died. That is a tough time to come upon mm -hmm. an understanding of death. And so like death rituals can feel so strange if they don't feel comforting to you, they feel very weird. So mm -hmm. like the mausoleum feels like something very adult and very separate and very other. Mm -hmm. And then there's this horrible idea about what happens to my parents' bodies. And that just really resonated with me personally, because I lost a parent at a young age too. And so like, mm -hmm. not to be a bummer, but like, I think like that can make you think weird stuff about like what's happening to this person I loved. So that makes me just like feel like the mausoleum is really scary. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, and you, you see Mike, doesn't, isn't there a scene where like Michael, he has a reaction. Or, or, mm -hmm. not Michael, sorry, Jody like sees his father's coffin, but he doesn't look inside. Right. And Michael like he, does. Yeah. There's mm -hmm. something about Jody saying like, I, I can't remember exact his exact line, but basically like, I don't want to know. Right. And then, but Michael does and he opens it and he's not. And there. it's empty. Yeah. It, <laughs> I, it, it, Stephen King must have considered the, this movie when he wrote Revival. I'm not sure if you have read because yes. that is exactly there's a lot what about Revival this. Is. I'm glad that I wasn't the only one. I feel like I'm, you know, the kind of person that's always going to be like, oh, Stephen King and everything. Mm -hmm. But Devon brought it Same. up and said that, yeah, it's, it's got some Stephen King vibes. Right. And I, there's a lot about this that it's like, right. this could for sure, Stephen King could have written right. this story. <laughs> I think of this and there's a new movie that's out, uh, The Harbinger from Andy Mitten, where the creature essentially like wipes you and all memory of you out of existence, like your family, your friends, there's no evidence that you ever existed. And I think of that and how that is a very terrifying answer. Like, well, what happens when we go? Um, someone said to this to me once, and it's filled me with existential dread every day since then, where it's like someday somebody will think about you for the last time uh, in the way future. And that's when you're, truly gone and that fills yeah. me with such inner turmoil and dread that it's hard to shake that um podcasts what, live forever they do podcasts hopefully <laughs> no hopefully they do we're all what, achieving immortality as we speak yeah. let's hope so what do you feel that the tall band's end game actually is um i mean again like Cause I think Michael, again, like his biggest fear is like, is only in the unknown things. Like, you know, he's not scared mm -hmm. of the tall man. He's not scared of uh, these, like uh, these uh, zombie dwarves. Like he's literally just scared of like, not knowing if Jody's going to leave him of like, not knowing, like if more people around him are going to die, not knowing like, you know, like um, the state of his parents uh, while all this is going on. Like, so it's like, yeah, it, it's just a, the, this mystery. So like, for for the tall man like and again like because he he's the one that's been going after their family I, I i i'm not sure besides other than to maybe again like if he's an alien it's like kind of an experiment in a way mm -hmm. to like kind of put these this family through these like trials i guess and like kind of to like kind of study the way that 
humans emotionally respond to things. Maybe, I don't know. Like, is he mm-hmm. a secret scientist on the side? Maybe. Um, but I, I honestly couldn't tell you. I think it's just like self-preservation. I think that he, I just always looked at it more as like, he's just kind of the, like running this operation, but he's not in charge of this operation. Okay. Like he's just kind of the muscle, right? Like making mm. sure like this gets to here and like, oh shit, that little kid's on to me. Got to take care of that. Yep. You know, like just kind of the manager here, but not the CEO. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Big, big GM vibes, big GM vibes <laughs> coming from the tall man. <laughs> he's a What's... night manager at the mausoleum. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I can't say having seen the rest of the movies. Okay. Okay. I don't yes. know how to separate my knowledge to mm, like, okay, you know, and <laughs> right. so I don't, don't want to say because it's it's obvious that like there's not there wasn't like I know Coscarelli wrote all five movies and directs the first four, but it wasn't like he had like a planned out arc like this isn't something where he's like oh yeah and when we get to the next movie because like I know with the second movie you it's really the only one that has any sort of like budget and a big studio behind it. And even there, the edict was uh, you can't bring back your lead. Uh, he's going to be replaced. And also no nightmares. Like it can't be like a movie about nightmares. It has mm. to be a more. So it's like, oh, so the things that people like about the first movie, let's eliminate those things. Um, I do think the sphere scene is terrifying, especially the fact that this dude pisses himself when he, dies like yeah. you see that and i guess you couldn't i think one of the things coscarelli says on the commentary for the uh remaster is like yeah like it, you really couldn't see this in the original print and it probably saved us from getting an x rating but oh. there's something about the like loss of dignity that comes with that it's not just that you've been murdered in this like really like horrific but fucking awesome to look at way but like the dignity of like hitting the ground and your bladder like letting out in front of and 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 the way that's framed like mike sees that and then pulls out the knife like after that mm-hmm. is pretty awesome oh yeah like the, it's always just a just a little extra upsetting there's a movie from this past year that 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 happened and i every time it happens i just go oh, like oh man like mm-hmm. even though he's already dead and like yeah it was very graphic and yeah. i gotta say um uh again like very kind of shallow influenced in the look of it but like i uh this is my favorite type of blood the uh the the bright red slightly <laughs> opaque you know it kind of looks mm-hmm. a little thinner compared to what blood would be like that, that that's my favorite movie blood so anytime i see that i'm very happy and uh we get a a nice little geyser of it here so uh yeah love that also i would just say the sphere i'm, I'm just gonna relate everything i'm sorry i'm gonna be that person but like the sphere design I think is also very Dune and Star Wars. The little training, the little training yep. things that like shoot, that's in Dune as well. And I think mm. that I think maybe he was like, "What about that?" But what if it like killed you? <laughs> it's not an accident. No, no. Yeah, it's too specific. It's mm. too specific and too yeah. cool. I think that yeah, I think I'm he was very just... envious of your sphere yes. i'm going to go buy one oh. immediately after this <laughs> that is it so doesn't cool. it doesn't have the drill part but it, well yeah, that's got, probably good for safety right. little, yeah it's got the little wings for, for safety reasons that's probably a really good thing yeah. do you ever play fetch with rambo with that like no, rambo fetch it, it's like i mean it's 
it would hurt. I don't know. It hurt heft. <laughs> yeah. It, it would, um, of course, become a TikTok challenge, and we don't need any. Oh, goodness. We, we don't need that from the sphere. <laughs> no. <laughs> so we've mentioned the Star Wars in Dune influences, like the Jawa look, oh, like it, the little the yes. little person's look here. Um, and you know, I've read and heard like Coscarelli has said, like we were already like filming the movie when star wars came out like this really wasn't supposed to be to look like this and they almost hey. went back and changed it <laughs> really <laughs> they were already filming it in 1977 two years before it came maybe they were maybe they were just, I, they, I they work because they, they were doing it on like random weekends right yeah oh, i maybe the lots weren't too far from each other how well this is all filmed like a lot of like what makes this movie work is like we can just like we can film in this park and we and i think they rented like every tombstone on like the universal lot basically to create um to create the uh graveyard and then they like Mm. rented away i think like they rented a warehouse to create the mausoleum scene so they're just like only there's really only a couple sets in this movie and then a lot of it is just like this looks like a pretty cool place to film outside. I mean, it's really like kids running around with cameras when you think about it. It's yeah. just like playing make-believe. Must have been in the zeitgeist or something. Or yeah. I don't know. George yeah. Lucas, I'm sure, Red Dune too. So maybe it's just oh, all yeah. things to do. I, I do <laughs> think that that is part of it. Okay. I think we got to do Dune on the Patreon next year. I think that has to happen at this point. So well, we'll wait, have there's to talk only, There's only two movies right so far yeah that counts two, two movies yeah. in a, a well, TV we could just movie, do the mini series yeah we could do just <laughs> yeah, do okay. a david lynch mini series and we could definitely do that as a bonus um all right i do you know before we talk the ending let's talk about the car yeah all right let's talk about the barracuda let's talk about this movie maybe influencing the show supernatural which is about <laughs> two brothers driving around like small towns like two young two brothers doing it in like a badass black muscle car right it's hard to not see the connections there again visually and thematically with that but this is just like a really cool fucking car um rachel you have like a great note in here from coscarelli as well can you share that yeah so i found this quote from him he said when i was in high school there was a kid who was a year younger than me who somehow bought one of those cars and would drive it through the parking lot. I would stand there with my friends and we would salivate over this car. It was a beautiful 1970 Plymouth AAR Cuda in sassy grass green with a white interior. It was really hot with the blacked out fiberglass hood and pistol grip shifter. I was cobbling together this horror movie. And for some reason I thought, oh, the brothers will drive one of those Cudas. It will give me a chance to get my hands on one. And I mean, I think that's huge. My dad told me a long time ago that he's like, People, you know, people always want the car that they couldn't have in high school, that the cool kid got, had, mm-hmm. the rich kid had, like your whatever your dream car was in high school. Those are the cars that like people want later in life. Or you see people like Stephen King, like I'm convinced like the cars that he writes about, those are like, there's a reason why, because at the time those were like late fifties cars and you see him write about those all the time. And so I think it's similar. It's like, those are the cars that kind of. If you're into cars, like stick with you. It's why I like one of my dream, like my dream cars are like Firebirds and like 80s, like the cars that 
preppy asshole jocks drove in like the 80s from movies because I just thought those were so cool and I think that's why he he specifically picked this the 71 Plymouth Cuda because he could he had the money and was like oh I can finally put this car in a movie and it's it's beautiful and they made a lot of alterations to it too Mm -hmm. which I think was cool they cut the yeah cut the roof out and then put the fender flares on it Love that. And then Christine was also a Plymouth. So, you know, which was a few years after. So uh, the influences everywhere. Uh, Also a little reminiscent of uh, Stuntman Mike's uh, Nova and Death Proof. Stuntman Mike. Uh, The the, the Nova, they they have uh, very similar looks to them. Uh, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Real, real, real sexy car. Yeah. Yeah, We're probably not talking about this movie if he's driving like a Volkswagen Beetle. <laughs> you know, or like a pin- Ford Pinto. Like we're probably not talking about Phantasm. All you know, all these That's years a later, different vibe. And right. again, much different. And again, talk about like not expecting certain things going into this movie. I didn't think we were gonna have a uh, a, a a car chase with a hearse and shooting mm-hmm. a shotgun and making it explode. Like I didn't think I was gonna get that car chase in this movie, and it was mm-hmm. so fun. Yeah. I mean, it really, I, I just, it makes me love Coscarelli so much because it's like he had an opportunity to make a movie and he's like, I'm going to make the movie I want to make. I mean, yeah. for all these things that I lo- like, you can just feel how much fun he was having. Mm-hmm. Like, I can just yes. imagine him like up at that cabin when he was writing it, right? Be like, oh, oh, and then we could do this. And like, oh, this would be right. cool. And just like the excitement, because it's got that kind of energy to me where it's like, oh, I can put a car in this. I'm going to put the sickest car that I've ever dreamed yeah. of. And like, oh, and I like, oh, remember that action sequence? And like, like that one, you know, movie, like I'm going to, oh, I can do something like that. And so he puts it in there. <laughs> and it, it speaks to how, you know, how he was a really young man when he did this. He had already made like two movies before this. And they were both kind of like, there's a drama and a comedy that he made that his dad basically executive produced. And he didn't do it on a whim. Like his dad was like, nope, this is a business partnership. Like I am mm. investing this money but I want to return on this investment as well. Um, and he said like during the screening of one of his other, of his comedy, there was like the scene where there was a, a jump scare with a Halloween mask and the light, when the audience reacted to that, Coscarelli was like, Oh, I could do this. Like I like horror movies. I could totally like, he's not someone that's necessarily a horror guy. You know, he's <laughs> not John Carpenter. That's like steeped in the genre. He's not like, you know, your modern day, like, Ty West or Adam Green or, you know, Rob Zombie, like someone who was like, I only want to work in genre films like Mm -hmm. he wanted to work in film, period. And he saw it like an investment, like I can do a horror movie. I like horror. And what speaks to his youth, he was like the biggest problem with like horror movies that I saw growing up is like nothing happens for long stretches of time or there's all this buildup and no payoff. Like in my movie, everything something is going to happen every five minutes there's going to be you know there's only like one you know jump scare in the movie and it's when like the early on when the motorcycle comes rearing out of nowhere like that loud noise startles you and he's like i can throw one of those in there but something happens every few minutes in this movie and there is a much longer cut of it he says when he first screened it it was closer to like two and a half hours or longer (laughs) there's a lot more like character building things in there that he's like okay this is ruining the pace of it they have to go but i do think he leaves enough in 
where the cat not like Reggie, Mike, and Jody, I don't feel shortchanged. I feel like I have a really good feel for who they are, but he's able to deliver the goods in terms of a genre picture. Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, honestly, I could I could watch a two hour cut of this movie, not two and a half. That's a little that's a little much, but I could watch a two hour with a little more yeah. with a little more Jody backstory, a little more uh, uh more sphere is if there's more sphere in there of course i'll take that but uh mm-hmm. but yeah it, it definitely made uh was a smart decision to go yeah. uh lean and mean but yeah i don't i definitely don't feel shortchanged by like any no. of the characters same yeah i actually like the lack of exposition too i think it works really well it same. well and thinking about I don't know if he was thinking about sequels, but just the ambiguity of the mythos. I mean, it's mm-hmm. very similar to like Hellraiser almost in the in the film anyways. Like if you don't, ex- the less you explain, it kind of leaves the door open, right? right. And then, look how many sequels we have. Look how many Hellraiser sequels we have. Like yep. if, you, if you close it off too much, mm-hmm. it's, or if you explain right. too much, uh, you kind of put yourself in a corner almost right mm-hmm. you know and we were discussing a few minutes ago like well, what is his end game like what is he trying to do and we think we have an interpretation of it but that interpretation comes from the ramblings of a 13 year old boy who spent 30 <laughs> seconds in a you know integral alien dimension as he was like free falling so how much can we really trust that interpretation like the reality is we really don't know which i think is and um, ariel i'm sure you can say like well actually in the next Mm -hmm. batch of movies are going to maybe over explain it um and i do like that we get to interpret it here and now speaking of interpretation let's talk about the end of this movie because i think it's a terrific ending Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and like, going back to what you said before, Ariel, about feeling like Mike is stuck in a loop. What do you make of this ending? Or when you say he's stuck in that loop, like how does that play out to you? What do you feel is going on here? Yeah, that's a good question. I the more I think about it, the more unsure I feel. Sometimes I feel like the um, ending of the movie is bringing him back to the beginning, like. He finally got out of this bad dream. He talked to Reggie. They're going to hit the road. There's a resolution coming. And then he gets sucked back into it. But I'm not really sure what that means, like, reality-wise. But it just feels sort of like that. We've seen the whole loop. And it's about to start over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I- it, it's it's interesting because I think, cause I think with these ambiguous endings, um, you know, there'll always be debate, you know, but then, you know, people love, they want to know the answer so bad. And then uh, eventually sometimes, you know, the director caves and they're like, fine, it's, it's this, you know, but then like, I think the best ambiguous ones are when it's like, when they're truly like, no, I, I made this and I don't know the answer that like it, 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 because I feel like you could literally watch the ending with either way. And they both have their own implications and they both would still work for the like finale of the movie, which is like very uh, incredible. So it's like I I truly kind of don't go one way or the other with it. I mean, I I guess I lean a little towards I lean towards it's real. I feel like it's um, I feel like there's maybe some uh, cerebral plane merging going on or something or i don't know so but so i i'm on the side more that's that's real because i feel like 
uh, I feel like Coscarelli could, could do better than, oh, it was all a dream. You know, like I, I like to think that like uh, out of all the ambition we've seen in this movie, um, I don't think that's how he would go out with this movie. But I feel like it truly can go either way. I, I feel like it could be a little bit of both almost. It's always funny. Like we read so much into these things. Right. And then like it's oh, I'm always just curious, like if somebody was being really honest, they're like. I didn't fucking mean any of that, but that's cool. Yeah, let's go with that. You know, it's like, how much mm-hmm. did he really intend to do? He's like, I don't know. I just thought it was cool. Like, but I almost, you know how sometimes when you're a kid, you see somebody, or it's kind of like you, when you see a high school kid, when you're like six, you're like, man, they look so old and so cool. But then when you're a high school kid, you're like, it's just a bunch of dorks. Or like, I don't yep. know, you don't, you don't feel like the kids that you saw and you see somebody that's, I don't know, you see things differently, right? So maybe it's a little bit of both where the tall man really does exist, but maybe he really just was the guy working at the funeral yeah. home and he just happened to be really tall. But in this little kid's mm-hmm. mind, he was really scary. Cause he's like, mm-hmm. like a very imposing figure. So maybe it's like a little bit of both where he's, you know, putting these characteristics upon this real life guy, but he's just a weird dude that works at a funeral right. home. Like, so I, I don't, I feel like it's, I kind of always read it as a little bit of both Yeah, where he, yeah, he's stuck in this loop but maybe all the supernatural otherworldly sci-fi stuff doesn't really exist, yeah. but maybe this other stuff really does the place, the tall man, but not the tall man that we know. I, so in my professional life, I deal with a lot of persons that are experiencing some form of grief or some form of loss. And a lot of time that takes on the expression of like complicated grief because it has persisted for so long because they haven't been able to handle it head on. Uh, In particular, like Ario, you mentioned losing a parent at a young age. Like I lost my dad when I was 19 and I am five years older than my sister who, so she would have been 14 when our dad passed. So again, roughly Mike's age when he's experiencing all this, I've worked with, parents that have seen like their children pass under unforeseen circumstances is like, which is not what you would expect to happen. It doesn't feel like that's not how life is supposed to work. And what can often feel, what it feels like is often happening in those moments is you're doing anything in your power to keep that person alive somehow. And it's something we do see in horror a lot when, you know, parents don't allow like their dead child's room to be like uh, stripped down or be repurposed. And it feels like that presence is just hanging in the air. And in this case, if Jody has really died in a motorcycle accident, if that's the reality of it, his presence is hanging all over this movie. And when Aria, when you said like, it feels like, he Mike is being sent back to the beginning at the end of this movie. I might argue that he's putting himself back mm-hmm. to the beginning of this movie. That at the end of this bit, it, what we see is he's defeated the tall man. Like he's thrown him down that pit and he's covered with all of these boulders. And once the tall man has been finally and definitively defeated, that is when Mike wakes up from the dream. And everything we've seen before it has appeared dreamlike, but he's never woken up from it. And now he's awake and Reggie is sitting with him and reminding him of like, nope, you've just had a really bad dream. Your brother is dead. We're here together. We're going to get through this together. And now Mike has to deal with like, I'm awake now. This is the reality of the situation. Now I have to face it head on. And by going into his room, 
he's able to see the tall man again and get pulled back into that dream world. He's putting himself back in that dream world because he's not ready yet to face the um, reality that like the three most important people in his life have been taken from him. And even though Reggie is there for him, he's in essence, he's on his own. And Rachel, I really like what you said there about, you know, the tall man was probably just this like funeral director that to a 13 year old boy or an 11 year old boy when it was his parents looks very scary. And he has a very scary job of being the person who is in essence, taking his fan Mike's family away from him, mm -hmm. which makes him in Mike's mind, like a monster. Um, so I like that he becomes like through no fault of his own a villain. Mm -hmm. And there's also just the commercial factor of like, this is a few years after Brian De Palma and Carrie, where you have that iconic shot of like Carrie popping her arm through and it's Sue waking up from the dream at that point. And at yeah. the end of that dream, like she's being comforted by her mom, like Mike is being comforted by Reggie, it's a time where like horror was having those ambiguous endings. Now it wasn't, oh, the monster is defeated and credits like the hero hugs his, his, uh, you know, his lady and like everyone lives happily ever after. It was like coming at the end of the 70s in Vietnam and the economic turmoil of the country and Watergate. We were no longer sure of ourselves as a country. There was a lot of questioning of everything and a lot of unsurety. And I think subconsciously that might have factored in as well to the ambiguity here. Plus, just the who wants to see fucking Angus Scrim in their bedroom mirror <laughs> unexpectedly? <laughs> it's a amazing jump scare at the end of the movie that would get you talking and say, you got to go see this movie in a time where like word of mouth would have been critical to its success. I mean, or it could also be like maybe that the 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 things happen, but that 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 end scene itself is the dream perpetuated by mm -hmm. the the tall man with his uh, mind illusion things. It, it, it's mm -hmm. uh, we, we gotta get that uh cork that uh cork board started. Uh, Ariel, uh, get <laughs> yeah. get on that cork board. I'm ready. I have an extra one. Don't worry. <laughs> Excellent. Never have too many cork boards. All right. I know you got to run here in a few minutes, Devon. So any final thoughts? I think we've nailed everything we wanted to, right? Any final thoughts on, on Phantasm? Ariel, why don't you kick things off? Oh, gosh. What can I say that hasn't been said? I mean, it's beautiful. It's haunting. It makes me feel all type of emotions. It's excellent movie. It's not what I expected, and I love mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a, I'm I'm here to see where the ride takes us because uh, I at first like kind of going in even when I volunteered to like watch this one I was like oh, I don't know if I'm gonna watch them all like I'll I'll do this one and see if I talk myself into it for the rest of it and like oh yeah I'm I'm ready like because I'm I'm just so I don't know like I I haven't had that in in a in a movie in a in quite a bit of just like a a true mystery that I'm uh, uh, excited to continue to unravel like the, the 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 tone the aesthetic like this is all kinds of my vibes like especially if you've seen yeah. some of the uh some of the movies i'm a big fan of um and uh and yeah so uh, i'm here for everything i'm gonna be listening to that score all the time now and uh yeah i'm, I'm excited to see where this goes yeah. oh man 
this movie like look i've seen lots of garbage movies i've seen lots of bad movies right i've and seen what a I, lot of crap i've seen a lot <laughs> of just trash but something i don't think this movie gets enough credit for it's just it's yeah the story is wild i love the story it's just bananas it's so different than anything i thought it was and it's out there but it's also a beautiful film like it's well made mm -hmm. There's some great shots, some great editing, some cool optical effects. Like this is somebody that thought about a lot of this stuff that, especially after, you know, the slasher boom where people were just chugging out stuff and throwing it together, like that stuff wasn't really a priority. <laughs> and yep. so it's nice to mm -hmm. see something like this where it's like, yeah, they didn't have a huge budget. Yeah. They were making it with friends. Yeah. Coscarelli edited it and produced it and shot it and did all this stuff, but he was doing his darndest to make it the best film that he possibly could. And so the, yeah, the more I learn about it, the more I'm just impressed, the more times I see it, the more I, there's just so much to unpack. I think the first time you watch it, it's like, wait what yeah. but then you know as you continue Literally. to revisit it you're like there's just so much to kind of dig into and I think that that really just speaks to how good a film it is and you know we're all amalgamations of things that influence us personally and culturally and globally and all of that and I think that this film also speaks a lot about Coscarelli as a person and the things that influenced him too so I think that it's also a beautifully, really personal film. So I don't know, just so much to love about this movie. Yeah. I love me a good indie horror movie more than anything. It's like on my old site when I ran all things horror, like it's what we focused on. Um, it's obviously like being a, one of the MCs and programmers who like tell you right horror show. Uh, I get to see and get to champion a lot of great indie movies. And like Coscarelli is a real maverick. Like he was someone that not only had a real keen, like very much like a year later, like Sam Raimi is going to do the evil dead. Like you were in this period where there was really smart, like do it yourself, indie filmmakers that went on, you know, in Raimi's case to go on and do like much larger things. And, Oscarelli has really kind of stayed, I think, true to those independent roots, even with movies like Bubba Hotep and John Dies at the end, and obviously shepherding the other four uh, Phantasm movies along the way, and like over the course of almost four decades telling one story. And there's almost a, you can see a direct line of what Coscarelli did in the late 70s to like modern indie horror stalwarts, whether it's Benson and Moorhead Jeremy Gardner, uh, Jen Wexler, who did The Ranger, uh, Bray Grant, who's done movies like Lucky. Like there's a real through line in terms of like being an independent spirit and being someone who is happy to work outside of the studio system uh, and able to create this real like maverick art that stays like true to their own vision and mm -hmm. creates these movies that, you know, years later we still want to talk about and dissect and still holds a lot for, you know, there's like a lot to dissect for modern audiences still, despite the funny hairdos, despite, um, you know, the fantastic cases, hairdos, you the mean. lack of hair, the clothing, <laughs> uh, Jody's hat uh, in when he's playing. God, we didn't even talk about sitting here at midnight, which is such a wonderful <laughs> Like that's a banger. 
oh, it's a total like I'm not going to lie. Like it's been on my Spotify playlist a <laughs> lot over these past two weeks just because that riff after the uh, is just. So uh, good. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, it's hot as love. Totally. Hot as love. <laughs> All right. So before we, you know, do our plugs here, I need everyone to give me their best like Angus Grimm, tall man boy. All right. I need that. So we're going to go. Devon, you're going to kick it off. Boy. Very good. (laughs) Rachel, you're next. Boy. (laughs) Very good. Some real pipes there, Ariel. Boy. (laughs) We're a little bit higher on the register. That's all right. I can't help that. (laughs) I, I know. Boy. <laughs> they're somehow all correct. We're we all just, they're, they're we somehow start all correct. Like a, like a metalcore band, but all oh, we, totally. we do is just <laughs> scream I, boy. Tall I band I lyrics. So best doing like youth crew vocals in hardcore bands. All right. <laughs> all right. Ariel, tell us a little bit about uh your projects, what you're working on, and where folks can find you on the socials. Yeah, definitely. Um I'm always writing for Cools Magazine, so definitely check them out if you haven't. And you can find me at Ari underscore Hellraiser on Twitter and the same name at Letterboxd. Mm -hmm. And I post all my writing and podcasting there, so uh, on Twitter, rather. So you can find me there and on all corners of the Internet, just Mm -hmm. screaming about the Saw franchise. Okay, excellent. All right. (laughs) So we'll definitely when I finally am like, fuck, I guess we have to do it. Yes, um, yes, yes, yes. So I've been getting a lot of calls to do that. So uh, for those who don't, what is Ghouls Magazine for those listeners who aren't familiar with it? Yeah, Ghouls Magazine is a UK-based um horror at review and analysis site from the female perspective it's started by zoe rose smith yep. aka zobo with a shotgun and rebecca mccullum aka pendle pumpkin and they put together this site just like not even two years ago it's very young but very successful so mm-hmm. far and so um women and non-binary people writing all their takes on horror and reviews and just all different kinds of stuff from like the A24 slow burns to like the nastiest stuff you can't even find anywhere. We kind of cover it all. So ghoulsmagazine.com, check us out. There's also, if you want to sign up and be a member and get exclusive content, we can also give you that. So I have to plug that. Yeah. Excellent. And what is a subscription? What does that run now? Um, not to put you on the spot no no it's it's 4.99 a month but it's in pounds so british pounds so, so it's uh, still it's roughly one to one right now okay i was gonna say look i don't know how i can't don't ask me to do the math but <laughs> my I know wife is british so we're always looking at the uh, exchange rate there so, you go yeah it's a great deal either way Excellent. And, uh, on the member area right now, I'm doing a breakdown of the Final Destination franchise on a members-only podcast with Iona Smith. So if Ooh, you want to hear that. Love it. Hot take. Uh, we covered Final Destination uh, a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. It's I the remember. best franchise of the early aughts. Absolutely the mm-hmm. most consistent. Love that series. Bru- I mean, that's simply incorrect. Have you heard of Saw? Yeah, I've watched I <laughs> I've watched Donnie Wahlberg act in a movie and okay. that immediately We're gonna, listen. I'm inviting myself onto your show oh, when you're you do that. saw so that we can finally have this out because 
Final Destination's great, but it's not Saw. Thank mm. God for that. Anyway, goodness, um, it's getting <laughs> oh, it's getting a little. <laughs> I love the first Saw. Of course, you know, it's, it's perfect. Great. How can you not? Uh, anyway, before, thank you. Before I insult the guest any further, I'm going <laughs> to extract my foot from my mouth. And Devon, what do we have coming up? Yeah, um, over on the Spectre Cinema Club, uh, we cover a different subgenre every month. Uh, finishing out the year on a light note, talking uh, some of the spookier Disney Channel original movies, uh, which has been uh, super fun. And uh, of course, before we get into a full month of uh, best of 2022, and uh, and uh, we got the rest of the schedule for uh, for 2023, and uh, we got some exciting stuff, and uh, including uh, some saw talk. So uh, so I think uh, I'm gonna have to have all you guys on uh, to 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 hash out. Uh, we're doing a uh, Saugus and Socktober. Uh, I'm busy 2023. That night. So, uh, oh, no, you're I not. will clear my <laughs> schedule. Yeah. So, uh, so exciting stuff uh, coming up for uh, 2023 on uh, the Spectre awesome. Cinema Club. We do new episodes every Tuesday. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok at Spectre Cinema. And you can find me on uh, all the same things at underscore Daddy Disco. Excellent. Rachel, how about yourself? Oh, we got some cool stuff coming up on Losers Club. Of course, I know Jen, our good old friend Jen Adams, just recorded um, an episode with them about the top horror of 2022, which I haven't actually even listened to because it just dropped today, but I'm excited to hear what they have to say. And then uh, we've, yeah, lots more coming there. And then I should have some, some things publishing on Dread Central later this month, which I'm going to give you the exclusive scoop right here. I'm writing about the best uh, killer trees, like Christmas trees, of course. <laughs> so you're welcome. Ooh, so that that hot scoop. The so hot scoops. Just, I'm going to need the... to read that. Yep, <laughs> It'll read definitely the list that. right now. Just the important things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you can find me over on Twitter and Instagram at Mike underscore Snoonian. Uh, you can find me on Letterbox and Hive at Mike Chump Change. You can hear uh, my other show, The Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast, which I co-host with uh, Jen Ferratu from The Losers Club. Uh, we're wrapping up 2022 with like basically each of us picked one of our own favorite movies to do to cover. And we just recorded last week and should be out a couple days after this hits. Uh, we talked about my one of my all-time favorite movies the battery in indie horror movie from 2012 mm -hmm. uh you get to hear me for two hours like basically gush over a six thousand dollar post-apocalyptic zombie movie that's really not about zombies uh, i may cry at some point because i just love this movie so much uh so follow psychoanalysis a horror therapy podcast or ever uh you get your shows as far as we go, follow us over on Twitter at Pod and Pendulum. I post other stuff on the other socials as well to keep up. Um, we have now hit 100 reviews. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Let's get to 200 by the end of 2023, and maybe I'll apply for that Rotten Tomatoes critic thing. Um, thank you so much to our listeners. Like The growth of this show over the past year has been... You know, it's really blown me away. And I think that's in large part to our co-hosts that bring really a lot of knowledge and passion and fun and make me want to up my game. And thank you to our listeners that have spread 
the word. We have some treats for you before 2022 lets out. We should have our Phantasm 2 episode up before the new year hits. We should be recording a um, best of 2022 episode. A bunch of folks have said they are into it. Now I just, all right, get your list in and let's pick a date. So um, I think that's going to be a really, really fun and eclectic list. Um, And we have a new concept show that we're going to do a trial recording on, like pitting some franchises against franchises where you know chucky you know elm street versus child's play who you got and i get to like referee this debate style kind of mini show so we got some really fun stuff cooking up for 2023 um so i am excited so listeners that's our episode on phantasm Ariel, thank you so much for joining us. Um, well, thanks for having me. I'm going to message you off air and see which of the other sequels you want to hop in on because uh, you are going to be a welcome presence here uh, whenever you would like. And listeners, thanks so much. Have a great one. Um, I got no quippy pun. I'm just going to go down some NyQuil and hit the sack. Folks. Boy, Have boy, everybody. Boy. <laughs> Boy. Boy. I'm working on it. Uh, I said I work with middle schoolers, so I feel like I can give a great pissed off old man voice. So, all right. Good night, everybody. Just a sitting here at midnight. All right. And I've been sitting here till noon. You see, my lady left me lonely. Yes, she did. Baby left me blue